Welcome to the Investor Coaching Show, a podcast to help you get an insider's view of the financial world and escape common investment traps. We look at the financial news of the day and help you make sense of it so you can relax about money. And here's your host, Paul Winkler. And welcome to the Investor Coaching Show, Paul Winkler talking world of money and investing, financial planning, retirement planning, and all of that good stuff. Oh man, okay, so what, what, what to start with? Well, I think one thing, how uh, th- it was interesting, there was a piece of um, writing about I-bonds and how falling inflation impacts I-bonds. And these are inflation-protected bonds. So you know, one of the reasons that we worry about investing in bonds, of course, is because of inflation. And if you got inflation, you know, you have a problem because the dollar keeps going down in value. You know, you may have something that you can buy today for a certain dollar number, but then in the future, those dollars don't go quite as far because, you know, you look at the cost of cars. You know, good grief. You know, somebody was talking about how you can't afford a car anymore. <laughs> They're talking about it's going to crash. It's all going to fall apart because the cars are going up in price. Well, you know, it's dollar going down. You know, that's kind of the way this stuff works. Well, you know, I was watching um, the History Channel last night, mm-hmm. and they were talking about the Model T Ford coming out at $500, and that in today's dollars, that would be 15000 Oh, really? and oh that's like, interesting. And I'm like, you can't even find a car today for $15,000, not brand new. That's so interesting. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it's, that, that is funny because you look at that and go, well, it wasn't even really a good car. <laughs> you know, the stuff it had on it, that's kind of expensive for what you got. Well, but it was now you can get a $15,000 car, at least you got a radio in it. <laughs> I think that's, uh, that's the big thing. Now, so I-bonds, the idea behind them, are you're, you're able to keep pace with inflation is what you're looking for. You know, you're having something that'll help you keep pace with inflation and with inflation, that's prices going up. And with bonds, typically the rate of return of bonds is just negligible. You know, after inflation, you look at treasury bills, it's like 0.3% return after inflation. And that's where people get into real trouble investing in CDs. And they think, I'm just going to put all my money in CDs in retirement because I don't have time for a stock market crash, which you often hear, right? Uh huh. Yep. And then you go, well, yeah, that's good, but you don't have time for watching your Dollars just erode and go away for purchasing power reasons. Well, and it could be it could be worse than that. Uh, t- the inflation. You also have the reinvestment risk. So, if well, let's, yeah. so let's say right now you just bought a five percent CD and you're like, oh my god, I was just getting a two percent CD, and then you're getting used to that spending that money at five, and then you have to reinvest it. And interest rates go back down. Go down, back down, and now you're back good, down good to two percent. So you got destroyed between inflation and reinvestment. No, so true. Yeah, that, that's very, very true. So with I-bonds, the idea is that you put money in a bond, pay, let's say $1,000. A lot of bonds, they are issued for 1000 bucks. That's pretty typical for the bond market. It will mature for $1,000 is what the, the way the bond market works. Well, I-bonds, what's a little different is that you'll have the rate that it is actually earning when you first get it. Then it also, the principal goes up by the inflation rate. You know, so that's the idea behind inflation-protected bonds. Now, the problem is that you look at that and you say, well, I'm getting protected by inflation, but the rate of return that's getting you up into the actual rate of return that you're going to be earning 
in reality, which is after inflation, that it's not much. Typically, it's very, very low. So if inflation goes up by 3%, let's say, and a bond is issued for $1,000, and it's paying 1% interest, if inflation goes up 3%, then the principal goes up by 3%, so it'll be $1,030, and then you'll have that interest on top of that, whatever that's paying. If it's 1%, it's $10 of interest. Well, this guy that's writing this article says it's worth buying these things right now. You know, you, look, he says, because it lasts for 30 years and you get 0.9% above inflation. <laughs> <laughs> writing an article I'm like going stop writing financial articles will you <laughs> well I, I think the advantage of them writing financial articles is that we have stuff to talk about and we do we do have things to talk about it's fodder you know it's it's actually a good thing but you know really really recognize that there are people out there and you know the idea is they're trying to sell something and you know they may or may not necessarily have good information to share with you. Uh, but that was, I just thought that was comical. Uh, the other thing is that there is, well, there were some interesting things out there in the workforce. Older workers. Ira, did you see that article on older workers? There was a, well, you may not have seen this one because I didn't send this one to you. But it was how they're stuck in tough, risky jobs was the point of the article. And the idea being that, you know, what's happening is people are getting older. They're in hard labor type of jobs. Maybe they have to use their backs. They have to use, you know, they, they're having to use their strength. And as time goes on, strength starts to wane, of course. But what's happening is people are finding, they're finding a significant number of older workers earning modest wages in physically demanding jobs. And retirement is elusive because they didn't save enough in those jobs. And this is something that I've been talking about for a long time, that we have to really think about putting away money for retirement, even if you have a low income while you're working. You know, I've had people say this, I don't have enough, I don't have enough income to save for retirement. I don't have a high enough earning capacity, and I will make the point that like, you know, the richest man in Babylon. I always loved that book because he said, hey, what do you do for a living? I, you know, I shoe horses. What do you do? I build carts. Uh, what do you do? I build houses. Do you all earn the same income? And the answer was no, I don't. We don't all earn the same income. Then how is it that you all end up with nothing left over? You know, so literally what we have to do is just protest and not spend everything that comes in. And that's the idea behind you know, just planning and putting money away for the future because you don't know and you may not recognize that at some point in the future, you're just not going to want to work and you're not going to be able to work. So typically I tell people saving anywhere for between 10 and 20% of income, you know, so if you make 40,000, uh, act like you make 32. Uh, if you make 50,000, you know, you take 20% of that, that's 10,000, act like you make 40,000. Whatever you do, Make sure you put something aside, especially when you're in these riskier jobs, because of the fact that you're going to get to the point where you can't do the work anymore. You have difficult schedules in those types of jobs. They're high pressure sometimes. Uh, people, are, they said they're, they're trapped in crummy uh, jobs and, and they're physically drained by the work and they just don't have the ability to do what they wanted to do or what they were able to do in their younger years. Well, that's one thing. Okay, so Ira, this is another thing. 
is this is the one I think I sent you. The real reason higher retirement age won't fix Social Security. I thought that was an interesting article. Why will a higher retirement age, why can't we just re-increase the people's retirement age and we'll make Social Security more solvent? that, That would be better because, well, we just pointed it out. They can't work all those years. They can't work in those demanding jobs until they're 70 years old or 75 years old. And that was the talk about that is that's what we're going to do. Well, what they talked about this in this new paper is they said they're looking at raising the retirement age and it would have little effect on people and getting people to work longer because they're not wanting to work longer. Have you found that? Can't. Have, have well, you found that? Yeah, I have a friend of mine who was a driver for UPS. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at 63 years old, he just couldn't do it anymore. You know, and his wife was like, it's time to retire. His kids, one of them being a doctor, it's time to retire. You just can't physically keep going. I can't, I can't work any longer. Or maybe because the spouse's health has gone or the person's health has gone down the tubes. Mm -hmm. Neither one of them can work longer. So hence, they end up having to retire not exactly when they expected to. And they said that people are claiming benefits. Many people are claiming benefits still. It's one-fifth of older workers in the United States are still claiming Social Security benefits as soon as they're eligible, according to this new paper. So Ira, how do, what do you tell people about that? Well, you know, and I, I look at it myself, okay? I tell people, you know, every single software program out there, and we've looked at dozens, and we have software to help analyze Social Security and when is the best time to take it. Mm-hmm. And every single system will say the same thing. Wait until you're 70. But not, not always. So well, let's just let's put a caveat because sometimes when you have life expectancy, it's a shorter life expectancy. Well, so. I was, I was going to say. Oh, okay. If you're I, was gonna live, say, I, don't wanna, I don't ever want to no, talk in absolutes. <laughs> if you're gonna, but no, if you're going to live, you know, 85, 90 or beyond, then it pretty much always comes out for the higher income, for the higher income earner. To, right. to be be clear about that, sometimes right. when you're a lower income earner and your social security benefit is less than half of your spouse, sometimes it does make sense to to take it earlier in that particular case. Yeah. But and, yeah. and I had an article, but my computer died actually. Oh, that's great. Uh, <laughs> hey, you know but, what? We'll have a break. <laughs> that's what breaks are for. But if you you know, but if if I was asked that question in September of 2020. Mm-hmm. I would have said, oh, I'm going to definitely delay until 70. Mm-hmm. In October of 2020, I was right. diagnosed with cancer. Sure. Okay? So at that point, I started thinking, well, I'll probably take it at 67 because I'll probably still be working. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my income, I don't want to be penalized. And I probably wouldn't end up with much of it anyway. Mm-hmm. So I'll wait until 67. Well, now that I'm three years out, more or less, um, or two years out, I'm feeling a lot better. And now it's like, well, I'll see how I feel when I get to 67. Mm-hmm. You know, it takes till about sure. 80, whether you take it at 62, yeah. six, your full retirement age, whether it was 66 or now for many people, 67 mm-hmm. or 70, at about the age of 80, it's very, very close mm-hmm. to how much has come out of the system. And it's designed that way, right? You right. know that if you're if you take so you it even. early, you break even, as sometimes we call it. Yeah, right. You're, you know, if you take it early, you're going to get smaller payments for as long as you live. Mm-hmm. If you take it at a later period of time, 67, 68, 69, 70, then you're going to get larger payments. But the government figures that it's for a shorter period of time. Mm-hmm. So it's not a matter of 
is there a right way or a wrong way? It's understanding what the options are to be able to make an educated decision for the individual. If your health is bad, you know, like mine, I'm feeling pretty good right now, but Mm -hmm. you know, if your health is bad um, and you don't expect to live to 80 or that long beyond 80, uh, then you may want to take it earlier. You know, when somebody says to me or asks me the question, when's, when's the best time to take Social Security? I usually start with the question, when do you plan to die? Yeah, exactly. Okay? <laughs> if you can pull that one off, then, you know. You know, because if you know you're going to die at... You know how much si- you need to save, too, because right. you know when you're going to run out. That's exactly right. Wait, if what? you're going to die at 68, yeah. you might as well take it at 62. Well, so Social Security is, if you look at what's happening with these people that are looking at their Social Security benefit and when to take it, what they're finding is that people are going to take it when they want to take it regardless you can go and change the age but you're just probably going to put people more in a bind if you actually do that and it's going to create some more hardship for people yeah Uh, so there are other things on the table for doing that there's a possibility of changing how they do the cola the cost of living allowance there's that's one change there's a possibility of changing how much of your income is subject to social security that's another possible change but i think one of the things that is often overlooked when people are initially thinking about you know, retiring early, you know, 62, 63, and delaying the Social Security until 670 mm-hmm. because they see how much more they would get at 70. And they don't look at the fact that they have to be earning that same amount of money uh, to the age of 70 to get that full benefit that's on that estimated statement. Now, one of the things I want to say, as you, you, you made a comment, and I just want to just expand on it in a little bit of a different direction, because I get this question commonly. And it's regarding, hey, if I just work a couple more years, won't that increase my benefit significantly? If I just, because I earn more than I did, you know, 30 years ago, won't I really increase my benefit? Because I'm in my peak earning years right now. And the answer to that is not necessarily that much because they're looking at 35 years of data on Social Security. So you may actually get a higher benefit, but it's probably not going to be significantly higher. And another question I've had with people that have owned businesses is they'll say, hey, you know, my my wife is also in the business with me. Our husband's also in the business with me. Should I just shift some more of my income over to her or him in order to increase their benefit? And that is a huge depends. That is a huge depends. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. The best way to figure that out is you set up an account as SSA.gov, Social Security Administration.gov. And this is something that may be kind of hard for you to do. This is something we do routinely for our clients. But what we'll do is we'll actually take your income history and we'll input it and we can change future possible income. There is a software program in there. If you're really good with computers, you may do it yourself. But you take your past income history, you plug it into the program, and then what you do is you project out a different number than what the computer system is normally projecting. Normally what Social Security does is they project out the same income that you've earned last year into the future when you get that benefit statement, which may or may not be your situation. What you can do is project out a different number based on, hey, what if we do change this person's income? Can we get a better benefit? And you have that ability to model that. So it's, but it's, that's something that it's, it's sophisticated, but it is in the program over there at Social Security. And we have programs that do it as well. But um, something you may want to think about regarding 
how to think about taking Social Security because, yeah, you know, they're looking at the system and they're going, hey, you know, there's a problem that the trust fund is going down. That doesn't mean your Social Security is going to go away. That just means if everything goes to heck in a handbasket that you'll have about a 20% decrease in your benefit. A little bit over 20% is the last number that they came out with. But the reality of it is Congress will probably do what Congress always does. Wait to the last minute and fix it. (laughs) So don't panic over what I'm saying. Just be prepared. Hey guys, if you want specific advice for your unique situation, schedule a free 15-minute phone chat with one of our trusted advisors by going to paulwinkler.com forward slash call. We don't sell any products and our advisors don't make any commissions, so this isn't a sales call. We have a coaching process that helps you understand investing and relax about money. Don't put blind trust in anyone with your financial assets. We want to partner with you in the process so you know what you're doing and why. We manage assets on a fee-only basis, which means that when you do well, we do well, which aligns our interests with yours from the start. We also bring you into the financial planning process that gives you a clear plan so you can find the freedom to pursue your purpose. All our advisors are degreed planners too, with years of experience. So schedule a free 15-minute phone call with an advisor by going to paulwinkler.com forward slash call. All right, back here on the Investor Coaching Show, Paul Winkler, along with Ira Work, talking about money and investing, and I was, uh, Ira was actually looking at TV this week, got back on, I don't, I haven't, I have not been watching anything, the 4th of July weekend has basically spoiled me. What have you been watching? I don't know about you. No, it's only financial stuff. Yeah, you're right, I don't watch, but it's financial stuff. So I don't. Did you find that iron that you do that? Just watch financial stuff. No. Well, just yeah. I guess no. only Paul. No. No. Only no. I do. Okay. Forget it. No. Forget um, it. I'm the only one that's that boring. But I guess. you know, I will tell you that you know, my wife and I left out on vacation the Thursday before, so I guess the 29th, the 29th of June. We went down to Florida. I came home this past Monday, mm-hmm. and I actually watched no television at all. And, and, not, and oh, do you feel better or worse for, uh, for it? I did not open up my computer. Do you feel better or worse for I it? I felt so clear-headed. Nice. I wasn't worried. I wasn't concerned. I didn't have a care in the world. No vicarious trauma. Nothing. Oh, it lo- was totally awesome. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I go on vacation um, to spend some time with my wife. I go on vacation because I need a break. Uh-huh. But it really charges me up to get back to work. I love it. Okay. So um, I'm going to give this a shot. I don't know. Do we know if this volume is going to be any good? We have no idea because we didn't test it. (laughs) We're going to try it, aren't we? We'll try it. (laughs) We're going to give it a shot. Okay. So this was a segment. Check this out. Uh, But but I think it's just another indicator. These are the people who have the best information about their own companies and the best information about the value of their shares. And so there's some sales. Okay. So so, so I'm going to come back. I'm going to come back. This guy is talking about billionaires selling stock in their companies, okay? Uh-huh. Now, catch this. Catch what he's saying. Listen to how he's presenting the piece for the media. I didn't even think about this. I, I am so glad you started with what you did, not watching TV, and how much better it made you feel. 
Because now that I think about it, that's exactly what this is all about. Check this out. Okay, here's the, the billionaire. growing list of billionaires and CEOs unloading stock at an increasing pace after little activity last year. Uber CEO becoming the latest high-profile corporate leader to sell shares. Robert Frank joins us now. Oh, my goodness. Billionaires are selling their shares of stock. Now, don't, don't tune out yet because you've got to hear the rest of this. You're on set with just how much has been sold so far this year, Robert. Sounds like a lot. It is a lot, Melissa. If you look at the America's top billionaires, they've sold over $9 billion worth of stock so far this year. The Walton family, those are heirs to the Walmart fortune, topped the list with nearly $4.5 billion of sales. Rob, Alice, Jim, and Lucas Walton, all beneficiaries of those sales. Now, the family typically sells to stay under their pledged ownership threshold at Walmart as they continue to buy back those shares. Okay, now wait, what did he just do there? Oh, well, they typically do it anyway. It may not have anything to do, in other words, with what they think their stock is going to do. Absolutely not. What they basically did is you have the stock being bought back by the company which you have fewer outstanding shares. What happens when you have fewer outstanding shares in a company? You got a piece of pie and it's divided up into 12 pieces. And miraculously, you're able to uncut, (laughs) you know, some of those cuts that you made. And now it's only six pieces. What happened to the size of the pieces? This might be a good elementary school math question. The pieces, the pieces got bigger. They got bigger, and they doubled in size. If you had an even cut, because you had twelve pieces, now you got six pieces. You have half as many cuts, and therefore the pieces are double the size, right? So what happened here is the pieces got bigger. Now, when we're talking about stock, we're talking about share prices, and the pieces getting bigger is the share price getting bigger, right? Okay, so the very elementary got this. Okay, now what happens is when those pieces got bigger. The, the, the folks at Walmart, the owners of the company, said we've got, because the stock price has gone up and you know, because, hey, we've got to own a certain percentage of the company, we can't let the number go above that number. And therefore, we are going to sell because that is our covenant that we are going to keep that number. So just glaze right over that, buddy. Right. I mean, just glaze right over it, right? Okay, so and going on. Many of the biggest sales, though, are in tech. Joe Jebbia, the billionaire Airbnb co-founder, cashing in nearly $900 million in shares. Those shares up over 50% this year. Oracle stock up up 35% this year. That's made Larry Ellison $38 billion richer. And he's got a lot more pocket change after he sold $848 million of stock after exercising options. Okay, well, go ahead. Okay, so go ahead, Ira. the yeah. thing there that gets me is how this commentator mm-hmm. is actually saying what he has done with it. Like he just took that money and stuck it in his pocket. Mm-hmm. Maybe he did like Elon Musk. Maybe he's investing in another business. He just sees a different opportunity. But sure. no other reason other than like with Walmart, they 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 said that they can only have a certain ownership of the company. Maybe it's the same way for him. But if it's say, well, Nigel got a lot of bigger piece of change in his pocket, he doesn't even know what that guy did with the money. <laughs> exactly, and that's coming up. You're actually ahead of me on this one, Ira. So, you know, so what, what we're saying here is he said something about options. Well, what, what are we talking about here? One of the ways corporate CEOs get paid 
is by exercising options. Because their pay, their regular pay, isn't all that high as a percentage of their total income, a lot of their pay is set up in options to incentivize them to do things to increase the price of the stock. Well, the actuality is the majority of their pay is in options. And typically, they have to hold those options for at least two years. Mm -hmm. And then they can only get rid of a certain percentage of those options each year. Exactly. So dead on right, Ira, because here's basically what we're talking about is we have aligned as much as we can the interest of the CEO of the company with the shareholder, you, the owner. It's actually a really good system. And this guy is making it out to be that there's something wrong with the fact that this guy sold the options and cashed in on some of the things. That he, now, it's not the only option. You're going to have more options than that. That's the, that's the thing. Now, that's not what you're hearing in all of this, right? But uh, let's keep going. Oracle CEO Saffir Katz also selling $470 million as she exercised her options. Salesforce CEO Mark Benioff, Palo Alto Network CEO Nikesh Arora, and three board members of NVIDIA, also big sellers. Moderna CEO Stefan Bonsell selling over $300 million of stock in the first half. That came after $400 million of stock sales by him last year. And finally, Josh Harris selling another $210 million of Apollo stock. That, of course, will help him pay that $6 billion price tag for the Washington Commanders. There you go. Go ahead, Ira. That was what you just said. He used the money to buy a, a team. So he spent $6 billion. So he sold $400 million worth of stock, which means he's only $5.6 billion in the hole right now. <laughs> so you look at this and go, well, he used the money for his own purposes, which is part of his pay, and he's selling it, but he's making it look like he sold it because, oh, it might be going down, it might crash. No, this is part of how they get paid. This is what gets, makes me crazy about TV. Now, uh, I, but, love, but I, think it's just a- I love this. I, I've, got, I've got to continue on with this one thing that I already started with, because this is one of the other commentators on CNBC kind of calling it out. But he doesn't want to call it out his guest and be rude about it. Listen to how he handles it another indicator these are the people who have the best information about their own companies and the best information about the value of their shares and so there's some sales going on the market picks no, up it's, it's an opportunity well yeah, here goes you know, eastman kodak what was his name carp thought you know he had to buy a lot of stock at 80 bucks gotta buy it then ml yeah, yeah so he just names a company where the guy the ceo of the company of all people was buying shares in the company so that's on the other side you know he's saying sell on this side there's they're buying what happened to eastman kodak uh they're making puzzles now uh, basically bankrupt bankrupt I just, the yeah. company went away now they went and you know you i i guess did they did they actually open up under eastman kodak again yeah uh, uh, they did no it's kodak is it kodak um, so so in, in in essence what happened it's a different company now and whoever right. owned it got nothing got a big goose egg yeah so, but so, I, I actually just bought my wife a puzzle did you really that was made by kodak well see there you go there it's they're, they're doing something totally different but it's a totally different company right now oh, yeah. is the point point. and this guy was buying stock in a company that went bankrupt okay and again buying GE shares on the way to single digits. Okay, Okay, so here you did another CEO buying shares in GE before it went below 
$10 a share because it was up in the 50s. And it went below $10, single digits, as he just said. Well, did that CEO apparently must be really knew what their stock was going to do? No, not really, right? May not know, right? That, well, and, and a lot of it may be for public, especially when you're buying stock. It's for war with idea, whereas selling is kind of is a little bit different. It's often related to what they're doing with their own personal finances, as opposed to what's happening with the stock. Bless the host at CNBC, Joe, for talking and actually making a point. Kind of a little bit timidly, but he made a point in order to make this guy backtrack on his idea that the CEO really knew what was going to happen to the stock in the company. There have been studies of CEOs of companies trading their own stock, and I'm telling you, they don't know anything more than anybody else. Now, there are people that track insider trading. There was a study that was done in Oslo, the Oslo Exchange where they were literally having insiders. Now this study was done and they found that they actually got lower returns than the market on its own during the course of that study. So don't look at these things and go, hey, these people really know what's gonna happen to the price of their stock. Not necessarily. Hey, this is Paul Winkler. Hope you enjoyed today's edition of the Investor Coaching Show. You wanna learn more about what we do, go to our website, paulwinkler.com. You can watch some of the videos there, and if you're not already a client, you can set up a free initial consultation. Until next time, I'm Paul Winkler, reminding you that I believe that more educated investors are more confident investors, and confident investors are more successful investors. Have a great one. Advisory services offered through Paul Winkler, Inc., an SEC-registered investment advisor. The opinions voiced and information provided in this material are for general informational purposes only and not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine what investments are appropriate for you, please consult with a financial advisor. Paul Winkler, Inc. does not provide tax or legal advice. Please consult your tax or legal advisor regarding your particular situation.